And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations, in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding at what is coming of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. These words of our Lord from the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Human beings have always had a flair for the apocalyptic. In one sense, it is the very simple and very real sense that we do not see reality completely. There are things which are hidden that we cannot see that must someday be revealed. In another sense, it is very understandable that we would consider, just in looking honestly at creation, that there must be some kind of end to it. Put these two together and you have an end of this age accompanied by a complete revelation, a complete unveiling of all that has been hidden. And the truth is that everyone agrees with this. Take the modern day climate activist. They tell us that there are unseen forces at play in the skies, signs in the heavens, signs that foretell of impending doom. But this is not all that is said. What is said is, we must act. We must change our ways. We must buy electric cars. We must take showers with cold water, etc. And among the most dire of those predictors, just simply say, there's nothing that can be done about it at all. Take those who predict a global pandemic of such proportions that human society cannot possibly recover. We are told that the capacity of an otherwise hidden microorganism, might, which might not even yet exist, could very potentially destroy us. And we are told, rightly, that the dress rehearsal for such an event didn't go well. So we must act, buy masks, do the rest, or we're all going to die. I remember living in California, and every year there was some kind of crisis. A water crisis, because not enough snow had fallen in the Sierras that winter. Or an electricity crisis, since there has not been increased generation in that state since the 60s. Or a wildfire crisis. And every time we were told in advance, the signs don't look good. And there were always signs which were very difficult to see, but always rather dire. And the message was the same. We must act. You must act. We're not going to build any more power plants. And we're certainly not going to do anything about the rivers. But you must act. You must put a five-gallon bucket in your shower to flush the toilet with later. Just do all these things. And we are certainly not the first ones to think this way. During the Black Plague, just about everyone in Europe believed that this was the penalty for unrepentant sin, God's judgment in the form of plague. In 1498, Albert Durer completed a woodcut entitled The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which interpreted the text of Revelation, the Revelation to St. John as talking about four contemporary fears, four horsemen, conquest, war, pestilence, and death. The Ottomans were quickly conquering Greece and Macedonia. Though the Moors had been defeated in Spain, there was still a deep conviction that Islamic rule was coming eventually to Europe. 
Europe had been in a constant state of war with the Crusades, with the Hundred Years' War, and with various other conflicts. Add to this a papal schism from 1309 to 1418 with the very possible return of such a schism. Shortly after this, the Protestant Reformation would get going an almost constant plague. This was an image that struck home, and since it was a woodcut, it could be reproduced and sent all over the world, over and over again. The four horsemen ride their horses to the right hand of the image, aided by an angel from heaven as they trample their victims. In every generation, signs in sun and moon and stars have been interpreted. Sea levels have been interpreted. People have lived in fear. Indeed, the people of the New Testament had many such signs, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, wars, conquests, and diseases. The church at Colossae endured an earthquake in the year 60, and the Christians of Jerusalem experienced the total destruction of the temple in the year 70. We are no different. We have our hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and pandemics. We have our wars. We have our concerns about conquest. I've not told this story widely, but sometimes I use it as two truths and a lie. On the evening of May 17, 1980, I was a six-month-old baby who happened to be camping with his parents at Mount St. Helens State Park. We broke camp just in time. About another hour, and we would have all been dead. I was up late at night, the morning of November 18, 1999, and I heard the sound of many waters, which turned out to be the sound of the Aggie bonfire collapsing, killing 12 classmates and injuring many more. The reality of life is that all of us have narrowly escaped death. In my life, I have witnessed two suicides. Just three years ago, a house behind us burned down, killing one of the residents there. As a priest, I have rushed to the bedside of young men in horrific car accidents. I have been in the room when life support has been switched off, and I have literally held the hands of the dying. We can remember these harrowing events, and if we are at all honest about them, we can understand that these point not only to a hidden reality in the universe, but to the unavoidability of death, to the end. Through the years, many of you have told me how much you appreciate the great litany which we sing every Sunday in Lent. And quite surprisingly and satisfactorily, none of you have complained. We pray to be delivered from lightning and tempest, from earthquake, fire and flood, from plague, pestilence and famine, saying, good Lord, deliver us from all oppression, conspiracy, and rebellion, from violence, battle, and murder, and from dying suddenly and unprepared. Good Lord, deliver us from these as well as other things. I have become convinced that modern men and women have no shortage of things to fear. Where we come up short is that our action in the face of such things, in the face of our fears, can only ever be a kind of triage. We know that death is still inevitable, and who can deliver us from that? We narrowly escape, and yet we know that it is still coming for us. 
Our cultural denial of the power and reality of death has unintended consequences. Not that we fear death less, but that we fear it more while being psychotically naive about it. And what this means is that death, when we experience it, is all the more traumatic. Deprived of any ability to find meaning in death, we are forced to try to ignore it, to deprive it of its power, if only linguistically. We use all of these little euphemisms. She's gone. He passed away. And personally, my favorite, we lost him. Last week, my wife told me of a woman who had lost her husband, to which I replied, where did he go? Come on, that's good. (laughs) Where did he go? You could laugh. Come on. I must be honest with you and tell you that these euphemisms do not befit Christians who believe in the resurrection, who believe that Christ will come on the last great day with all his saints. That, beloved, is the first theme, if you will, of Advent, that of a future Advent, a future coming of Jesus Christ the Lord, a day when all will be revealed, a day when death is looked square in the face, but not as a final end, no, as the necessary precursor to judgment, the precursor to heaven or hell. Zechariah looks forward to this day as the day when the Lord is king over all the earth, when the Lord will be one and his name one, meaning, as St. Paul puts it, all in all, united to his people in whom he has put his name, and a day when heaven and earth are no longer divided, when hidden things are made visible. Zechariah's vision is that of the Mount of Olives being split in two, you might know this if you've ever been to Jerusalem. You can, just, you can just see it so clearly that the Mount of Olives is this very large hill that abstracts the vision from Jerusalem of the whole Jordan Valley. You can't see it because the Mount of Olives is in the way. Jews have long believed that the Messiah would come first to the Mount of Olives, coming from the east, and Christians have joined them in this by saying that the second coming would happen in this way as well, since the ascension happened on the Mount of Olives, and since the angels said he will come in the same way as he left. This is why Christians have always worshipped facing east, even if here we only do so facing Waco east, which is actually south. By Southwest. But I do not mean to prognosticate about the future. I do not mean to say that rising sea levels are a sign that the end is near. What I mean to do today, well, it might be. What I mean to do today is say simply this that there is no human action which is sufficient for that great day. The scriptures consistently point to the sufficiency of the living God and God alone in the face of human disobedience and death. The scriptures point to the sufficiency of God to restore broken creation, to put disasters to an end, to usher in a new and everlasting age. What on earth is to be done? An easy answer would be to say, repent. And that would be true. We should repent. 
That should be obvious to any Christian. You know, Christians should repent. Okay, great. Glad we got that sorted out. But our repentance does nothing to delay judgment. The better answer would be to say simply what Jesus says about this. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In the midst of a people who are fainting with fear and foreboding, you and I are to be a people who raise our heads in the expectation of redemption, who are to straighten our backs, literally to turn our heads upward. Can we look for earthly answers? Of course, and we should. But you and I must not forget that the ultimate answer is nothing more than, but nothing less than, Jesus. If I can find fault with the church today, it's that we look for earthly answers more than heavenly ones. We look for earthly justice more than judgment. We look for health in the body more than we look for restoration to the very image of God. All of these things which we witness in the world, what are they? Signs. Signs of a coming kingdom. Signs of a world that is falling apart at the seams. Signs of a world that cannot be saved by human power, but only by one who has power over death, who reigns over creation. This is the prime message of Advent, and if I can wrap it up succinctly, I'll do so in basic catechetical terms which some of you have already heard. The first is that you and I are dying of a terminal disease called sin. Congratulations. The second is that the earth is subjected to futility because of sin. And the only one who can do anything about it is the one who not only conquered sin, but showed supreme mastery over creation, who showed forth his glory in being raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we come to adore and worship the Lord in his nativity at Christmas, you and I must get up close and personal with the essential problem that he came to solve. We must know the right question before we can know the right answer. I love you know, what Rosaria Butterfield says about this. For Christians, there can be no good answers to bad questions. There can only be good answers to good questions. And the question is, what's wrong? What's the problem? And the problem, dear friends, if we're honest about it, is me. I cannot save myself, I cannot justify myself, I cannot avoid my own death, and I am woefully inadequate to judge. I cannot stop disasters, I cannot stop death. And that being true, I can have no other hope than Jesus. I can have no other savior than him who conquered death. Indeed, in the world there has only ever been one answer to the deepest problems, to the deepest wrongs. No other name by which we can be saved. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.